All right, everybody. Here we go. Good morning to you. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, if you have a Bible today, let me tell you where we're headed. Normally, I give you one place you can turn to. Today, I'm going to give you an option. We're going to spend equal time in two different parts of the New Testament. Uh, If you'd like to, you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, just the very first handful of verses there, starting in verse 3. Uh, Or if you want to kind of delay, maybe you need a little bit more time to find your way, we'll also be in Hebrews 12 this morning. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today is in those two passages of Scripture and try to sort of thread the needle between what both of those folks are saying to us and what God's saying through them and what we're going to do about that together. Um, Today is the fourth and final week of a four-part teaching on forgiveness as a spiritual practice. Now, the reason I clarify that every single week is because if you're like me, many of us think of forgiveness as a feeling or something sort of arbitrary or enigmatic that happens at some point after somebody's hurt you and you've decided that maybe you're going to ignore it or let it slide or or look the other way or not count it against that person. Some of that's fine. Some of it's not very good for you. And we've talked about that across the last three weeks. But what we want to do is different than that. We want to not just talk about what forgiveness could be hypothetically for some group of people somewhere, someplace. Uh, We want to talk in real concrete terms about how we become people who are disciplined when it comes to forgiveness. Um, I've used this analogy with you before, but I think it's very helpful. Uh, Yesterday was a day full of uh, high-stakes college football games. My wife and I love college football. We are University of Michigan fans, so we had a great day yesterday. It doesn't always happen, but we had a lot of fun with Michigan staying undefeated. Uh, If I had decided yesterday that it was time for me to play college football, which I'm too old, but if I decided I was going to do that and I I went to a game, bought a ticket, and decided to rush the field, and maybe I bought my own shoulder pads and a helmet and I had a homemade jersey on that looked a little bit like a Michigan jersey, first of all, nobody would put me in the game, but even if I ran onto the field, if by some chance encounter I actually caught the ball in the middle of a play, uh, the damage that would be done to my body at the point that an actual athlete tackled me would probably cause them to reconsider whether they could even show college football on TV if children were going to watch it in the future. I mean, the way that I would be broken in half, limbs torn from my body, blood everywhere would be terrible. So here's my point to you. Loving college football, wanting to play it, hoping to someday maybe possibly be able to do that is totally different from training to do it. And in the scenario that I've laid before you, which is totally silly, you're all laughing at it, it would never be a good idea for me to just wait until an opportunity came my way and then hope that I could strap up my cleats and put on my pads and be ready to jump in the game and play. Forgiveness is a lot like that. Forgiveness is something that you can wait to get good at until you've been wounded, but it's probably too late to do that. Uh, This is often the case in many other areas of our spiritual lives. If you're like me, we usually wait to pray for patience until we're already out of patience. You ever have that experience, right? God, help me hold this in. I probably should have started praying for this days or weeks or months ago so that I would be ready today. Our intention is to become forgiving by way of practice, by actually doing what Jesus actually said to do, and doing it in a way that grows us and changes us. So what we've done across the last three weeks, I'm going to show you a slide that is probably more information than you can process if this is your first Sunday here in this series, but this is just sort of a quick, high-level summary of what we've done the previous three weeks so that you can tell where we've been, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go today, and then we'll go there together. The very first week of this series, I tried to answer two questions. First, I tried to answer for you why we should forgive anybody. I think we all feel like our parents taught us that we should do that, but what's the actual benefit to you and me if we choose to go through this very hard process of forgiving a person or forgiving a sin that was done against us? 
Then I tried to answer the question, if we were convicted that we should do that, if we found out why, well, how do we do it then? What are the actual steps we can take if we want to know whether or not we've been forgiving or if we just sort of have thought about it or hoped it would happen? So we did that, and we finished week one with the definition that you can see behind you on the screen, that forgiveness is self-absorption of a relational debt that seeks reconciliation. So that self-absorption isn't just, it doesn't just terminate on you. It looks for reconciliation if possible, and it does that based on the mutual, between you and the person who hurt you, the mutual human need for unlimited forgiveness, for forgiveness that doesn't run out, that doesn't have an ultimatum attached to it, that is never a line in the sand where if a person crosses that, well, I would have forgiven you before, but now I won't even consider it. So that's what we did in one week. It was quite a bit of ground to cover. The second week, I tried as best I could to help you understand that human forgiveness is dependent upon divine forgiveness. And we set that point against the way that most of us believe, which is wrong, which is that human forgiveness is dependent upon human remorse. In other words, we often think that we have to wait until someone has apologized to us before we can begin the forgiveness process. In fact, the way the Bible teaches it is that forgiveness is totally your business, who you, def- who you um, forgive and when you forgive them and whether you're willing and how long it takes. It really only has to do with you. Certainly, the other person can continue to hurt you over and over again, uh, but especially if you remove access of them to your life, you have the decision to make. You can't sit around and wait on other people hoping that eventually they'll become remorseful and then at that point, maybe you can start the healing process. No, because God has forgiven you. You have the capacity in Christ by the power of the Spirit of God to forgive people who have hurt you as well. And then last week, we tried to spend some time at the crossroads between abuse and forgiveness. And we said that of the three potential paths that an abuse victim can walk, the path of um, vengeance, the path of contempt, both of which are rooted in hatred, or the path of forgiveness, which is rooted in love for another, that's similar to the way we love ourselves, uh, that the only path that leads to healing is the path of forgiveness. And so what we want to do today is we want to try to move from sort of, if I, if I look at that list, I think of kind of these concentrated zoom ends on different areas in which we might need to apply forgiveness. I want to zoom out a little bit as we finish up this series together. And I want to try to help you understand that forgiveness is not just something that we sort of hope we never have to use, but is there if we need it, sort of like a first aid kit. We don't want to think of forgiveness as a band-aid because then even if we're good at forgiving and even if we have a, a really good experience forgiving someone else, we'll still always associate forgiveness with being connected to another person wounding us. What we want to do is we want to learn to see that forgiveness is really core to the way that we do our Christianity and therefore it's not just a tool or a weapon that we can call on in time of need, it's an attitude, it's an outlook, it's a lifestyle in many ways. So that's what I want to help you understand is that forgiveness is like a doorway and a wall or like a gate and a fence and that we can walk through that and enter into a new kind of life and in doing so I think experience more and more of what Jesus has in mind for us when he talks about life and life abundantly. So let's start with him. Let's begin together in Luke 17, looking at some of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness that we haven't looked at yet in this series. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. The Bible will call them apostles, meaning that it's the 12 that he sent out that would start the first group of churches. But we can assume, based on the context, that there are at least dozens of people around and that the 12 are kind of having this Q&A panel with Jesus. Maybe he's sitting on a rock or he's beside the sea, but they're asking some questions and Jesus is answering those questions to teach and instruct on what life looks like inside the kingdom of heaven. And as he does that, they ask more questions or they get offended or they're not sure what to do. And so we're, we're going to jump into kind of the middle of this. You can imagine if this is a YouTube video, we're scrubbing to about the halfway point and we're going to jump in here and see Jesus' answer to one of the questions his disciples have asked him. Jesus says this in Luke 17, 3. Watch yourselves. In other words, be careful. If your brother sins, then rebuke him. If he repents, then forgive him. 
Even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you each time saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So very similarly to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, Jesus is using an exaggerated number here to communicate the idea that you need to forgive people more than you would like to and that you need to continue to forgive people, maybe even past the point that you are comfortable or even whether, whether you're sure that you should or not. Jesus is saying you should. You should continue to, to forgive. You should always continue to forgive. You should forgive as much as you possibly can. Back in Matthew 18, where we were in the first two weeks of this series, we saw Jesus use the number seven times 70 or 77 times, either one, as kind of a hyperbole, an exaggeration that's meant to tell us that the number of times that we have to forgive is more than we could possibly keep track of, that it's not actually helpful to tally up how many times you've been wronged and then decide whether or not that's too many or not enough, et cetera, et cetera. That's the wrong conversation to have. Uh, What Jesus is doing again here by using the number seven is communicating that when somebody wrongs you and they know that they're wrong and they come to you and say, I repent of what I did. I'm going to change the way I'm thinking about this and I intend to change my behavior and my actions as a result of changing the way that I'm thinking about it. That's what repentance is. That if they're willing to do that, that you say to them, I forgive you. And they have the experience of having sort of hit the jackpot of forgiveness. When Jesus says seven here, he's using mental imagery that his Hebrew audience would associate with the idea of perfection. You and I don't really engage with numbers the exact same way that this group of people did, so maybe a better way to think about it for you and I is you can picture the 777 that shows up on a slot machine when you hit a jackpot. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. When someone comes to you and they say that they're sorry for what they did, acknowledging that they were wrong and repenting for it, they should feel like they hit the jackpot. That of all the people they could have wronged in the world, they picked the best possible person to wrong because you will forgive them and forgive them and forgive them and forgive them. Now that sounds really cool. It sounds great if I'm the one doing the wrong, right? I mean, I would love to just continue to be forgiven and not really have to suffer through broken relationships or a whole lot of time and distance from the person that I've wounded. But if you're like me, you're probably not thinking so much about the person who's done the wrong. You're probably thinking about the person who has to keep on forgiving. That's who you're thinking about. That's who the disciples are thinking about because Jesus is saying to them, that's who you are in this analogy. You are the person who continues to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Jesus is answering the question, how many times should I forgive someone by saying more than you think you should and more than you want to? So I wonder how that makes you feel to hear Jesus say that. I mean, maybe that's not a brand new concept. If you've been here the previous three weeks of this series, you've heard Jesus uh, introduce the idea of unlimited forgiveness, at least whether you've kind of made peace with that you have to do that or not. I don't know yet, but you've been thinking about this a little bit. Maybe if you're like me, you you think that being more forgiving is a step. It's, It's better than nothing, and I think that's probably true, but let's be honest with ourselves. Does there really ever come a day where we wake up in the morning and our first thought is, I can't wait to forgive everybody of everything. That's all I wanna do today. I don't care about what I watch on TV. It doesn't matter how my workday goes. I'm not terribly concerned about whether or not I get any chores done around the house or my kids have a a meal that's worth eating or anything like that. I just just wanna forgive. I just exist for God's forgiveness to flow through me out into the world and to touch everybody possible so that all they know is the grace of God. Probably not. You're probably never going to wake up and feel exactly like that. I think Jesus knows this. If you look back at the beginning of this little passage, look at the way he begins what he says in verse 3. It's a caution. Watch yourselves, he says. Now, out of context, maybe that feels a little bit abrasive or aggressive. He's speaking to a group of people who've already given up everything to follow him. So what does he mean, watch yourselves? I mean, they, they, they're literally in step with him everywhere he goes. They're trying as hard as they can to sync their lives up with his life. 
what he's communicating is that it's possible to get this wrong. And it might even be possible to get this wrong and not know that you are getting it wrong. Or it might even be possible to take it a step further that there are instincts and natural tendencies in you that if you follow them would lead you the wrong way, would lead you away from being a more forgiving person and would actually allow you to think you've been forgiving but in practice really stay bitter or treat people with contempt or pursue vengeance in your life. What's interesting to me is the disciples respond in very much the same way that I think we would if we were standing there listening to Jesus talk about unlimited forgiveness seven times a day with the same person. Here's what they say in verse five. They answer him and say, increase our faith, which sounds really cool and noble and kind of church speak like, but what they're actually saying is this is never gonna happen. That's what they mean. When they say increase our faith, they're saying I, don't, I can't do that. I don't know what you mean. I don't think I believe in you enough, Jesus, to do that. Like, I like you a lot, and you're here, and it's cool when you heal people, but seven times the same person every day? Are you serious? 49 times a week, I have to forgive this idiot for the same thing that they should have figured out by now? I I don't know. Again, if you're like me, I think we probably get two or three rounds of forgiveness in, and then I've probably had enough, to be honest with you. And I'm more in the camp of, like, throwing haymakers than I would be of just continuing to quietly and passively, out of the stillness of my heart in the presence of God, continue to offer forgiveness. So they say to him, we need more faith. Now listen to what he says back to them in verse six. He replied and said, if you had faith, we're gonna come back to that idea because I don't think they catch that that's pretty insulting. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, then you would say to this black mulberry tree, so we can assume Jesus is standing by a black mulberry tree, you could say to this tree, be pulled out by the roots and instead be planted in the sea and that tree would obey you is Jesus' response. Peter and the other disciples say the same thing that we would have said. I'm going to need more faith than I have now if I'm going to give these other knuckleheads, as a nice way of saying it, the opportunity to continue to hurt me and for me to continue to forgive them. Jesus answers that idea with a little bit of a veiled insult. He's not saying you need more faith. He's saying if you had some faith, then this would be doable for you. He uses, again, another exaggerated example to make his point. He's saying, if you had even a little bit of faith, then the trees would get up and move when you told them to. So it's not just that you need more faith. I think he's trying to attack this idea that they don't just need Jesus to make them a little bit better. That's often how we treat Jesus. He's saying, you need something new, a thing that you don't have. And it's only going to take a little bit. All you need, if you can think of a mustard seed, think of like a poppy seed on a hamburger bun. That's a more common visual image for us. You need something little, And if you just had that little thing, then all of this would become available to you. But again, I want to draw you back to the beginning of verse 3 when Jesus says, watch yourselves. Because if you're like me, when somebody hurts you, you probably spend most of your time thinking about them. You can't believe they did that. You question their character. You question, what are they going to do next? Who else will they hurt? What does this mean about them? Can they ever be trusted again? Jesus seems to think that a better person to spend your time looking at and thinking about when you've been hurt is yourself. What will your response be? How will you handle what has been done to you? What choices will you make in response to the way that you have been wounded? Again, what Jesus is trying to say, the same kind of exaggeration he uses in verse 4, here in verse 6, is you need to keep forgiving and you need to forgive all the time. And you're going to want to stop forgiving way before you're done. But if you are forgiving out of your own faith, the faith that I will give you, the faith that currently you don't have, then even the trees will jump when you say jump. They'll ask how high. Or where do you want me to move to and where do you want me to be planted? Now, again, Jesus is using hyperbole. I don't think he literally means that Christians are meant to spend a fair amount of their time instructing trees on where to go and what to do. He's simply trying to make the point that if you had 
the smallest amount of faith, you could do so much more than this thing that seems impossible to you. So what do we do with that? It's hard for that to be very encouraging. The disciples get to continue following Jesus in person, listening to his teaching, watching him do miracles. Their faith is built and built and built until it's crushed at the point of his crucifixion, and then it's all resurrected when he is. They get to have that really unique experience. But what do we do? How are we supposed to actually engage with the fact that we may not have a lot of faith right now? That all of this talk about forgiveness may sound good and it would be great if we could begin to take steps, but we're just not sure if God's forgiveness is the foundation of human forgiveness, as we said two weeks ago. We're just not sure yet if that's exactly right or if it is right, how it works or if it does work, what it feels like because we're not sure that we've ever really experienced it before. Well, the good news is, is the New Testament understands that forgiveness is really central to the way we do our faith. And so this is not the last passage that we'll look at today that will instruct us in what to do and how to do it. So I want to draw your attention now to the book of Mark. Uh, You can turn there if you want to, but if you, it's just one verse. If you want to look at the screens, I'll just read it to you. This is Jesus again teaching on forgiveness. Here's what he says. He says, when you stand praying, because that's how people used to pray, they stood to pray. uh, If you have something against somebody else, which means they've wronged you, Not that you've wronged them. If you remember that someone else has hurt you, wounded you, wronged you, Jesus says, forgive that person so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your sins. Now, a caveat here, it's easy to read this in English and to think that Jesus is saying the opposite of the point that we made two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we said that human forgiveness is based on divine forgiveness. It kind of seems like this verse is saying the opposite, that God will only forgive you or God will only consider forgiving you if you are a person who forgives other people. It's not a very good translation of the way Jesus said this in Greek. So I try not to be the Greek nerd for you, and I also don't write in my Bible a lot, but if you have your Bible open, you might scratch out the word so there, and you might write instead in the same way. That's really what that Greek word is trying to communicate. What the verse is really saying is this. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive that person in the same way that, the Father, that your Father in heaven will also forgive your sins. So Jesus is saying the same thing that we've said, the same thing that he said weeks ago, that the only way to be forgiving is to keep in mind, to keep in heart what God has done to forgive you first, that his forgiveness is primary and that there will be times and places where you're doing other things and the idea, the mental image, the face of the person who hurt you will pop into your head. And in response to that, Jesus' expectation is that you continue to do the work of forgiveness. Again, this is him beginning to imply that this is going to have to happen all the time. It's going to be a regular practice for you. You'll need to be thinking about and working on this somewhat regularly if you hope to get on the field and play the game when the time actually comes. You don't want to just wait until it's game day and then hope that you can kind of muscle your way through. Now, I'll say to you, God is gracious and the Spirit of God will not abandon you, so maybe what God will do is drag you kicking and screaming through the wounding process and through the forgiveness. That's possible, but you have a choice You could actually get on your own feet and walk with him. You could, by way of your own willpower in partnership with the Spirit of God, because of what Jesus has done for you, you could actually participate in steps, in real concrete actions that would lead you to become a more forgiving person. The forgiveness of other people in your life is your business and it's serious business. This is what Jesus is saying in both Luke 17 and Mark chapter 11. You must watch yourselves. You must know that when a person's face comes to mind that you have something against, it's your business as to whether you forgive that person or not. It starts with you. So I think a good question to ask is why? We know why we should forgive because God has forgiven us first, but what benefit is it to you and I? Maybe a better question to ask is, and the one that I'll try to answer next is, what happens if I don't forgive? 
it can't be that bad, right? I mean, a lot of us have had new ideas about forgiveness kind of come our way in the last four weeks anyway. And if you're like me, I'm 33 years old, and I go, well, I, I had 32 and a quarter years before I really spent a lot of time thinking about forgiveness, and I seem like I've done okay, at least. My wife might say otherwise, but my understanding of myself is that I've done a pretty decent job so far, so it can't be that bad, can it? Well, unfortunately, I think for the majority of us, we've probably made peace with being pretty sick in our hearts. We've just gotten used to it. We've gotten used to being cynical. We've gotten used to all the different kind of symptoms that come into play when we're unforgiving toward other people. And so the standard, the bar, the, the, the temperature is very low for us. Kind of our common experience, it all lines up. And when we talk to people in life group and we share with other people in our lives that we love about how we're still kind of bitter and we haven't let it go and the wounds seem to be haunting us and it's starting to change our personality and our outlook on life, everybody else goes, yeah, me too. And we kind of go, oh, well, I guess that's how it's supposed to be. What the Bible is calling us to is something different. It's fair, I think, to ask the question, if God is so gracious, then isn't there grace for my unforgiving heart? Well, sure there is. But that doesn't, just because there's grace for something doesn't mean it's God's will. In fact, the opposite is true. In order for God to need to apply grace to you, you have gone against his will. So just because you can be forgiven for something doesn't mean that that's the solution to the problem. It's God's solution to your sin, but it doesn't just suddenly fix the thing that's been wrong within you. Maybe you're thinking like I have many times, as long as I don't act on my bitterness, as long as I don't act on my wounds, as long as I don't act out the things I would like to do, the vengeance I would like to take on the people who have hurt me, then it's really all the same difference, right? Well, no, the answer is no. Unequivocally, the answer is no. Bitterness, hatred, vengeance, contempt, these are not neutral things. Even when they are not acted on in a way that anybody else can see, they change you. This is the point that the author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews is trying to make in about the middle of Hebrews chapter 12. This is the other place I told you guys that you could turn. We're gonna start reading in verse 14, and I want you to hear how communal this idea is. Jesus so far has been speaking to individuals. In Luke 17 and again in Mark 11, he's speaking to you. Now, it's in the context of other people, but it's individual instructions for how you will live your individual life. Now the author of Hebrews is gonna to talk to churches small groups, families, couples, friend groups, roommates, groups of people that spend time in close proximity. Here's what that has to do with forgiveness and what unforgiveness can do to you. The author of Hebrews tells us that we ought to pursue peace with everyone. Now in the context of forgiveness, that's an immediate challenge. Right away we've hit a stumbling block because everyone includes the person who hurt us. How do I be at peace with the person who hurt me? Well, that's a great question that I think the Bible's gonna try to answer. The author goes on and says, and you ought to pursue holiness. For without it, really interesting that that it is a combination of those two things, peace with everyone and holiness, without those things together, no one will see the Lord. In other words, no one will enter into eternity with God. This is a symptom of salvation, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. When you've been saved, when you've repented in response to God's mercy and grace, the thing that the first slave in Matthew 18 didn't do, when you come into contact with grace and you say, okay, this is gonna be life-changing for me, I accept it, I repent, I'm sorry, then you will pursue peace with everyone. Then you will want holiness. Now he gets more specific in verse 15. He says, see to it then that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's tricky language. That makes it sound like people who haven't lived up to God's standard. That's not exactly what he means. What he means is people who are unwilling to apply God's grace to themselves and the people around them. In other words, the author of Hebrews is speaking to what has been common human experience in the Christian church for thousands of years. He's talking to groups of people who come to church and say Christian things and don't apply grace. They don't actually live in the gospel. That's what he's saying. To fall short of the grace of God is to willingly choose to not live in the gospel, to not apply any of these things, to not let them change any part of your life in a meaningful way. Here's what happens if you do that. 
he goes on to say that no one would become like a bitter root that is springing up and causing trouble, and through it, through that bitter root, through that person who has failed to or is maybe not even interested in applying the grace of God to their life, many become defiled. This is scary stuff. This means that there is a real scenario, real enough that God decided to put it in the Bible, where a person, a, a person who exists in a group of Christians, a person who claims Christ, who has other Christian friends, family, community, whatever, however large or small, you want to picture that group, that that person can themselves refuse to be forgiving in such a way that they grow into a bitter root. The word picture here is vivid. It's beautiful. Imagine, if you would, that you have a garden or you have a pasture or some piece of land where you're growing something good. And there's this one tree, and it's all brambles and thorns. I can't remember the name of the scrub that grows up on the side of the mountains here, but it's horrible if you ever try to bushwhack through it. It's nasty. Imagine that stuff. Just thick, tangly, wet vines. You can't hack through them. They don't break off. So you decide that that plant isn't going to be good because it's choking out the other stuff that you're growing. And so you cut it off at the ground. You just you cut it off. You dry all the waste. You burn it all up so there's no seeds to plant more of it. And then you come back next spring, and what... Would, would your eyes find but this little tiny green sapling growing up out of the exact same place that's the same plant? Because what didn't you do? You cut it off at the ground level, but you didn't pull the root out. That's the word picture that the author of Hebrews is asking us to use, that it's possible if you consider, take a local church as an example, a pasture, a green field where God is growing all of us together. Different speeds, different fruit, but all towards him, okay, towards the sun. It's a good analogy. And in the corner of this field, one of those plants suddenly changes to become bitter and it begins to choke out the life of all the other people around it. Well, you can try to cut that plant off at the surface. That's the equivalent of acting like you're not bitter when you really are. You can try to change the branches of your life. You can try to oh, force new fruit to be born on your branches, but come springtime, when everybody starts to grow again, all you're gonna do is grow more bitter. And as you grow more bitter, you're gonna have an impact on the other people that are growing around you. Now, thankfully, God's solution to this is not to get rid of you and kick you out, because if we're honest with ourselves, all of us will have a chance to be that bitter root probably a few hundred times in our lives. This isn't just one bad egg in a local church. This is a cyclical experience we have every time someone poisons us, someone attacks us, someone wounds us. We're tempted to internalize that and let it change and warp who we are. What Hebrews is saying is if you embrace that, if you say, this is who I'm going to be, I'm going to stay bitter, and God can do nothing about it, I'm unwilling to take the steps, I know they're hard and painful, I'm not going to take them in order to grow back and to be healed and to be made back into Christ-likeness, I won't do it, then you're not just going to hurt yourself. You run the risk of defiling you, but also of defiling all the other people who are around you, which then, if we were to look back up at verse 14, eliminates the possibility of us being at peace with everyone or pursuing holiness. It's all, excuse me, one connected idea. And it's the same idea that Jesus is communicating about back in Mark 11. It's the same idea Jesus is communicating about back in Luke 17, that you are going to have to decide what to do with your baggage. No one can make that decision for you. Certainly there are people who are equipped by God to walk alongside you and help you, to tell you which steps will lead toward healing and which won't. Hopefully I've played that role in some of your lives in the last few weeks. But what I can't do, even if you have me over for dinner and we unload all of your baggage, is I can't actually take any real concrete steps in your life to let it go. You have to decide that. Jesus says, watch yourselves. He says again in Mark 11, be careful when someone comes to mind, even when you're praying, that on the spot you do the work to forgive as much as you can. And then again, here in the book of Hebrews, the author tells the churches, which includes our church, if you allow a root of bitterness to grow within yourself, you don't watch yourself, you don't forgive when that person's face comes to mind, then what you're asking for is to be defiled. 
and to have the people around you defiled as well. Now that raises a good question because we don't use the word defi- excuse me, defiled very much. When I think defiled, I think of like, I don't know, like a cult that has like an altar in somebody's basement, right? And they're only supposed to put goat's blood or something on it and now somebody spilled Coke or, I don't know what they did, but they defiled the altar and this kind of ceremonial, holy thing that existed has now been ruined and it's this really big deal. Frankly, what the word defiled means, if you were to look it up or engage with its history, is simply that something's been twisted out of its original shape or it's been bent or when it's really bad, it's been broken, all of which happen at the hands of something evil. That's what it means to be defiled, is to allow evil to twist something or to allow evil to bend something or to allow evil to break something or even if you don't allow it to have that happen to you. It is to become damaged in a way that time and space don't heal on their own. And there are many ways that bitterness can defile a person. Many, many ways. But I want to try to give you three quick examples so that you know what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Because my my perspective is that this bitter root that grows and defiles us is far more common than we probably think that it is. The first category that I think is most helpful to consider when we're thinking about how unforgiveness can defile us is self-pity. One of the fruits a bitter root grows is self-pity. And here's what self-pity does. Self-pity starts by acknowledging that something bad has happened to you. And by you saying it shouldn't have happened, but instead of moving toward healing, it's staying camped out in that hurt such that you rely on other people to make up the difference, emotionally, relationally, physically, whatever. You say, I'm wounded, I'm damaged, so now it's gonna be everybody else's responsibility to pull me along, to carry me, to drag me behind them. That is itself a kind of entitlement. Now, this is a hard truth to swallow for some of us, but uh, some of us are tempted this way more than others are. We're tempted toward a kind of victim mindset. Not having been victimized ourselves, not really, or having not been victimized for a very, very long time, we're tempted to just live in that, for that to become our identity. And as we live in that, we gain these expectations for other people that they're gonna meet us there, and that if they can't meet us there, that it's somehow their fault. That if they're unwilling to take into account all of the baggage that we carry everywhere we go, that they're the bad guy. They're just more of the same problem. Here's the dangerous thing about entitlement, is entitlement doesn't stay stagnant, it grows, and eventually it hardens into cynicism. Self-pity leads to entitlement, leads to cynicism. And cynicism is when you say, life is just horrible. And it's always going to be horrible for everybody and there's nothing any of us can do about it and the joy and the light go out of your life for good. It is, without competition, one of the most um, prolific victories that God's enemy can have in the heart of a person, especially a Christian person. Nobody does better for being a cynic, but Christians especially get choked out fast when they become cynical. When there's no more room for joy, when there's no more room for mystery, when there's no more room for God to do something against all odds in the 11th hour to step in and actually save the day, well, what's the point anymore? What would Christianity be if we're cynical than just another logical transaction that we've made because we come out ahead in the end? So self-pity is one of the areas where choosing not to forgive changes us and then impacts and changes the people who are around us. The second category is despair, and this is perhaps the most relatable kind of defilement for those who either are single or dating or have recently been dating. Here's what despair can do. Despair, in response to you not forgiving someone who's hurt you, will encourage you to write off a whole category of relationships. So here's a few examples of how that can work. Let's say you have a terrible biological father, somebody who uh, took advantage of you physically, hurt you, shamed you, pushed you down, was never reliable, tried to kind of drive you to become this uber successful person. And so in response to that, you've grown up enough now that you can acknowledge that that wasn't good and it never should have happened. 
But instead of realizing that you got a bad dad and that there are many good dads, you might be encouraged by despair, by not forgiving your own father, to just decide that all fathers or maybe even all men are evil in the same way. That would be a way that despair would creep in. Or maybe you can think of an ex, a person that you dated previously, maybe you were even engaged and you got close to one another and you opened yourself to this person. You gave them a chance to see who you really were and then in that moment of vulnerability, they rejected you. Not you guys went on one date and they thought you had bad breath and so they didn't text you back. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you knew this person and they knew you and out of that deep knowledge, they rejected you. Despair would be an easy, easy place for your heart to land. That root of bitterness that says I can never forgive that and so how would despair work its way out in your life? You would say all relationships are traps. Nobody should open themselves to anything like that. I'll never date again. I'll never have that experience again. And what you do is you end up robbing yourself of the opportunity for God to give you the good and right version of the thing that hurt you. Now I'm not saying this is easy at all. It's not like you snap your fingers and go, oh well I was going to despair today but I heard a great sermon on Sunday and so now I won't. Now I feel really good about just staying open and nobody's ever going to wound me again. That's not what I'm saying to you. This is work. This is why Jesus says watch yourselves. This is why the author of Hebrews says look out for one another. Be careful that nobody becomes a bitter root because it's possible. It's more than possible. It's likely. So despair encourages us based on being wounded to reject all of those kinds of relationships in the future. And then finally, and this one maybe relates more to those of us who are parents, is projection. I don't know if you know this or not, but your tendency to project your needs onto other people is very probably a fruit of not having forgiven someone who hurt you. Here's how this can work. Uh, Maybe you've had this experience before. I've had it uh, uncomfortably recently where you lose your patience with your child or somebody at work who's a subordinate to you and you hear your mother or father's voice come out of your mouth. And you're like trying to catch it before it's, it's just out there and you did it. And now you're embarrassed and the person that you screamed at probably doesn't feel better. Uh, so we do this sometimes where we, we take on even the negativity of a person who we would say we don't want to be like. But because it's kind of baked into us and because we haven't forgiven and dealt with that history, we take on that person's countenance, we take on their choice of words, we take on their attitude, their philosophy, and we find ourselves hurting other people. It's similar to what we talked about a week ago. We multiply the evil out into the world. By not dealing with it ourselves, we take one wrong thing that happened to us and we plant it in the ground of our life and it begins to bear fruit and we pass that fruit out to everybody that we meet. This is another way that we can become bitter. At its root, projection is relating to other people based on your needs instead of theirs. It's parenting your children based on your needs as a child, not their needs as children. And it is all rooted in somebody a long time ago hurting you and you never forgiving that, and that means that they kind of stay in the driver's seat of your emotions. Even though you wouldn't want to say that they are, the fact that you're so fixated on them causes you to continue to make decisions based on their influence in your life. And God has more for you than that. So these are three different ways. This, these are just a handful of examples. We could go on 5, 10, 15, 20 more examples of ways that if we allow bitterness to set in, even in the context of a great local church like this, we will defile, we will twist, we will bend, we will break ourselves in the name of staying bitter, in the name of staying angry. These are not just small problems. These are characteristics that you can take on that can change the way you make decisions and change who you're in relationship with and really alter the trajectory of your life for years or even decades. So the author of Hebrews is not playing games because God's will for you is that these things don't happen. That you be protected, that you take steps that are reasonable and available to you by the power of the Holy Spirit to not engage in this. Because here's what can happen to you. Anger is a thing that's oftentimes justifiable when somebody's wounded you. And anger, I think, defiles us faster than anything else. 
It's one of the reasons that it's one of the only emotions that a person can experience that Jesus has to be very clear about. That there is room for anger, but only anger without sin. That implies that most anger is tempted towards sin. So you have to be very, very careful. The Bible never has to say be happy without sin, or be patient without sin, or be kind without sin, but it does go out of its way to be explicit to say be angry without sin. Because anger has a tendency to turn itself into rage, to turn itself into hatred, and to encourage you to take steps to treat people in a way that takes you way further than you ever intended to go, where now you're entering into violence or you're breaking off relationships or you're treating people with extreme disrespect, you're treating them as as if they're not even people anymore. Anger can twist us, it can change our spiritual shape. Here's what's really interesting. Our concept of anger comes from an old English word uh, called wrath, W-R-O-T-H. So you can think of wrath, but with an O instead of an A. Here's what's really interesting to me about this word. Wrath is the parent word, so you can, if you can picture in your mind kind of a diagram, it sits at the top. It's the parent of three different words in English, which don't seem like they mean the same thing, but kind of do if you think about it. Wrath is the parent word of wrath. I already told you that. That's where we get anger. But it's also the parent word of wreath, like the thing you hang at your house at Christmas. And it's also the parent word of wraith, which is another word for ghost. Here's why those words are actually a lot closer together. And I think by understanding this, you'll see the way that this kind of wrath and anger can defile you the way that it can work itself out in your life. A wreath is itself twisted. And I'm not trying to make you not like your wreath in your house anymore, but maybe when you go home, you'll see it and you'll pray for the people that you're mad at now. That would be great if that could take on some spiritual significance in your life and not just be pretty greenery. But I don't know if you know this, if you've been out in the woods lately, but trees don't grow in a circle. It's never happened. And so what we have to do to make a wreath is we have to cut greens and then we have to bend them and twist them and force them into a shape that is not their natural shape. And we do that so that that wreath can serve a different purpose from the one that it was made for. This is what anger does to you. Anger cuts you off, it hacks you off, it bends you into a shape you were never meant to take on so that you can fulfill a purpose that isn't your purpose, which is attacking the people who've hurt you, which is trying to have some kind of vendetta-style justice in the world for the people who have wounded you. The word wrath is when anger twists you. We've talked about that. And the word wraith, really interestingly, is another word for a ghost. Now, I don't believe ghosts are real. I don't think disembodied human spirits can roam the face of the planet. The Bible doesn't say that's possible. Hollywood has done a lot with that. But if you look into folklore, folklore would tell you that the idea of a ghost is very different from what we think of today. Oftentimes we think of ghosts as these sort of free-roaming, disembodied spirits. Maybe they're demonic. Maybe they want to possess you like they do in a movie or they somehow can grab a knife out of the kitchen and hunt you through your house. I don't know. But the real history of what a wraith is, is they're a kind of memoriam. It's a terrible thing, but if you go around the world anywhere, this happens in the southern United States, there's some ghost stories here in Alaska that are really interesting, this is true in European countries, in eastern countries, the idea of a wraith or a ghost is a person who was murdered, typically. And that person doesn't just roam the world angry because of what happened to them, like in the Whoopi Goldberg movie, what they have to do is they have to relive the moment of their betrayal over and over again. A ghost is not just a disembodied spirit. A ghost is a spirit trapped in the place at the time that the wrong was done to them. And they relive it every day, every 24 hours, they go back through that pain. That's a pretty good picture of what wrath can do to us. If you'll allow me to say it this way, what's so neat about the way these words interact with each other is that wrath, just allow me this, this is not a verb, but I'm gonna make it into one. Wrath will wreath you into a wraith. That's what's happening here. Your anger will defile you, will twist you to the point that you change shapes and you become a disembodied person. You become stuck 
at a time, in a place, reliving something that happened to you again and again and again. And you yourself are haunted by that memory, but more importantly, according to what Hebrews says, you haunt the rest of us too. The effects of that, the effects of that unaddressed, ungiven forgiveness will run you into the ground. Now, what I think I can say without having to pull the room today is that's not what you want for your life. It's not what you want for your spouse. It's not what you want for your children or your friends. You don't want them to be ghosts of themselves. You're, when you held that tiny baby all those years ago, your vision for their life was not that at some point someone would harm them to the point that they would stay stuck forever in that moment. Not at all. The good news is, is that's also not God's will for you either. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you to be a ghost of yourself. The solution, according to what the author of Hebrews tells us then, is that we see to it that we not engage with this, that we not just be people who are empty shell Christians, who say the right things and go to the right places and take the right actions, but inside are disconnected from God's spirit. And the applied practical steps that the author of Hebrew gives us to work against our own defilement are in verse 14, that we pursue peace with everyone and holiness. I don't know if you know this or not, but when we talk about the pursuit of holiness in modern churches, one of the ways that we do that is we talk about the application of spiritual disciplines. That's the point. That's what we've been trying to do with forgiveness from the very beginning is what the author of Hebrews is asking us to do here today, to be at peace with everyone and to pursue holiness. We don't do disciplines to score points with other people, to appease God because we're scared of what will happen if we don't. We participate in these disciplines because we want to be made into the living, breathing image of Jesus. That's what it means to pursue holiness. So if I can take you full circle in a wreath, if you will, from where we began back to where we are now, our objective has stayed the same this whole time, to find a way to rhythmically and regularly engage with forgiveness so that we are not distorted and defiled by our anger, but so that we are formed and changed into the image of Christ. I believe that there are three ways that you can practice relationships differently that if you will engage with and embrace on a daily basis will change your ability to forgive the big hard stuff when it comes your way. This is how you get in the gym with forgiveness so that when you step on the field to catch the ball, you don't get blown up into pieces by the person who hits you so that you're ready and prepared to do what Jesus has told you to be ready and prepared to do. Here they are, and we'll move very, very quickly through these. The first thing that we have to do is start with the person who has offended us. If we're gonna be at peace with everybody, we gotta figure out what to do with the bad guys. They're gonna be the hardest ones to forgive. They're gonna be the hardest ones to interact with. My understanding of what scripture would ask you to do is that you have a humane relationship with the people who have offended you. And we talked about this briefly a week ago when we dealt with abuse. Forgiveness is not the same as instant trust. Let me say that again to you. Forgiveness is not the same as instant trust. In the same way that before you ever knew the person who hurt you, you spent a little bit of time with them, you had to warm up to each other, you had to tell some stories, you had to get to know one another. It's very possible, I would say even likely, that when somebody has wounded you deeply, you're gonna have to walk a similar path back to having that relationship restored. That's not fun and nobody likes it, but it is okay. It's reasonable for you to need some time and need some space to reach a point where trust is back on the table. But that's not the same thing as forgiveness. Forgiveness is choosing not to live in that emotional cage that that person has put you in. It's choosing not to be haunted by the wrongdoing that that person perpetrated against you. It's more about you even than it is about them. Even though you're the one forgiving them, it's you who will benefit more than they will. And so how do we do that? Well, this is kind of a practice of resistance. It's resisting cutting this person down when we see them. It's resisting always dragging the past out every time we're around each other. It's resisting the urge to be commanding or controlling of the person who hurt you. 
in the intention of teaching them a lesson or keeping them from ever doing anything like that again. It's also resisting the urge to punish or shame the offender because that would feel like a small form of justice to us. It's not, but it would feel like it is to help us sort of even the emotional odds a little bit from how damaged we feel by that person. It's also, of course, resistance to actively seeking physical revenge, choosing not to attack this person physically or to have contempt or hatred in your heart toward them, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Practicing humane courtesy with those who hurt you and helping yourself, praying that God will help you actively resist giving yourself over um, to these urges, this hatred, this contempt. This is how we avoid defilement. This is one of the steps we take if we want to avoid bitterness. If you want to bitterness-proof your life, the first thing you need to do is find a way to be humane with the people who hurt you and not engage with them like you would when you were 8 or 12 or 15, where it's all an emotional reaction and it's knee-jerk and it's a lot of pain and it's, again, multiplying that evil, multiplying that damage. Second is you need to practice an honest relationship within your mutual community. Very likely, if a person has enough access to you to hurt you badly... They're a part of a friend group, or they're a part of a family, or they're a part of a small group at church, or they're a part of that church. You'll have to find a way, if you want to practice forgiveness in a way that will be a discipline in your life, you'll have to find a way to be honest about that person without slandering them. You see, honesty cuts both ways. Honesty prevents us from one ditch on one side, which is that we just excuse the wrongdoing and ignore it and never tell anybody what happened. That's a lie, and that doesn't actually help anybody. The other ditch is that we exaggerate and we blow the details up, and we don't give ourselves enough time or space to see what happened accurately, and so we begin adding little bits and pieces and sensationalizing the way that we share the story with other people so that we get the reaction out of them that makes us feel better. That's us acting on that self-pity. That's us trying out of that entitlement to get other people to say, oh, that's so terrible. How could anybody have ever done that to you? Wow, what a monster. Wow, how could that? It's crazy that person's even allowed to walk the streets. They should be locked up for what they did. We like how that feels. That feels really good when somebody's taking advantage of you, when somebody's hurt you badly. Honesty is between those two things. It's the road. It's saying the truth. This person hurt me. They shouldn't have done it. We read more than once in the last four weeks that the Bible's instructions for you when you've been wronged are to rebuke the person who wronged you. Wronged you. You don't ignore it, you don't look the other way, but to the same degree, you also don't bear false witness. You don't make up things, you don't exaggerate, you don't represent necessarily the way you felt like it could have happened. You try as best you can to stick to the facts so that everybody's informed, and in doing so, you will actually serve the person who hurt you because you will participate in preventing them from hurting other people. And if you're in community with each other, that's a little bit of your responsibility. I'm not saying you need to become the police for this person. What I am saying is if there's a mutual friend who says, hey, I, we haven't seen you at the group lately. You've kind of been quiet in the group text. What's going on? Did something happen? It seems like every time Mike comes around, I just picked that name because one of my friends' name is Mike. Mike comes around, you kind of disappear or you don't show up if Mike's going to be there. What happened? Well, it would be wrong to say nothing if, unless the answer is nothing and you're just being weird. But if something actually happened, then the right answer would be, well, Mike actually really offended me. And I don't think he meant to, but it really cut. And I'm not sure I'm quite ready to confront that with him yet. And so I didn't want to poison the group, so I've just taken a step back. That's awesome. That's a great answer. It's fair. It's honest. It doesn't demonize that person, but it tells the truth. And it equips your friend to know what the heck to do with this situation. Because if people don't know, then they're tempted into gossip. They're tempted into kind of exaggeration on their own side, digging, making connections that aren't really there. Telling the truth is always the best way forward. Then finally... We need to think about how we're going to relate with ourselves. You must resist your own defilement by refusing to constantly bring the wrongdoing up to yourself. 
And this comes with a caveat, because if you're working with somebody whose intention is to take you through this experience to healing, then you will have to relive certain things. You'll need to revisit them, but you'll probably want to do that with the help of a Christian counselor, a person who's older, wiser, and better trained than you are. That's not what I'm telling you not to do. What I'm telling you not to do is lay in bed all hours of the day and night and relive the experience again and again and again and keep replaying that video in your head so that you become more and more bitter and you feel more and more justified in your intentions to do wrong to the person who hurt you or other people who are like that person. Awareness of what happened can quickly become obsession when it comes to how we've been hurt. So we resist replaying the wrong over and over again. We choose not to dwell on what happened in our hearts either. What we want to do is allow the sense of loss and allow the sense of hurt to fade, if it can, and to grow just a little bit more dull. Not that we're ignoring it, but giving it time and space so that we can see what happened accurately, so that we can call that person to account and deal with what actually happened. That's our intention. What happens instead is often we harbor anger within our inner selves, and even if we don't show it to anybody else, we allow it access to our, our personality, our thinking, our decision-making, and it warps and it twists us into ghosts of ourselves. So my hope for you is this, that you would see these steps as opportunities, that you would not misunderstand this teaching or any of the other teachings that we've ever done on spiritual practices as the way into God's presence, as the way into salvation, as the way into eternity with God. They are not. But they are fruit that your life can bear if God has saved you. This is some of the hope. This is some of why we don't just get saved and then like sit in a dark room and try not to sin until we die and go to heaven. There is a life to be lived for us in sync with the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus. We are still his disciples. He is still our rabbi and he empowers us to walk in obedience. In short, you can have a way better life with Jesus. The way better life is not the point. The point is Jesus himself, but a great, wonderful side effect of walking with Jesus is that he will equip you to navigate real human experiences and to do far better as you go through those things than you would ever do by yourself. This is some of the hope that we have in the gospel. The gospel is that powerful. By applying the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus to yourself, you can walk in freedom and you can resist the urge to allow this bitter root to grow and you resist it by practicing forgiveness. You have the chance to live in the kingdom of God now, what Jesus said when his ministry began. The kingdom is here. What does that mean for you? Well, when it comes to forgiveness, it means that you can live in a land, you can enter through a doorway, you can go through a gate in a fence into a place where there is no more bitterness. On this side of eternity, there will be cause for bitterness. People will snub you, they will attack you, they will undercut you, they will gossip about you hundreds if not thousands of times. You can wait till those things happen, do your best, get it wrong, and repent, and God will love you the whole way. And honestly, you'll be okay. Or you can practice this and be ready to be a different kind of person who can communicate and demonstrate the love and mercy of Jesus to those who are around you. If you don't deal with it at all, then bitterness will defile you. It will change you, and it will change the people around you. So instead, my prayer for you is that we would practice relationships that are humane, that are honest, that are humble, and I ask Jesus that he would use this daily practice of applied forgiveness to shape us into his image instead of being twisted into the image of anger and hatred and that he would draw us further into our awareness of his presence. I wanna pray that for you now. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for caring about the way that we interact with each other. Uh, it's profound to me, Father, that the Bible isn't just uh, full of teaching on what eternity will be like but that you care enough to fool with our human lives. 
we appreciate that. God, one of, the, one of the greatest, most hopeful pieces of my faith is that it matters today, that it can change the way that I interact with my wife, it can change the way that I parent my children, and that I can become a person who is less angry, is less bitter, is less reactive over time. Remind us, Father, today, as we've said many, many times, and we'll say many more, that discipleship takes exactly one human lifetime. Give us grace for ourselves that we not become comparative to some idea that we think we should have achieved by now, but that instead, out of humility, we would just repent here and now, today. We would open ourselves to your influence and your presence and trust that you will grow us at exactly the speed that you want us to grow. We love you, Father, and we trust you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.